10% of it is actually built upon. That, that's everything, houses, gardens, factories, roads, airports, etc. And about 46% uh, is protected. It has statutory protection through being green belt or national park or area of outstanding natural beauty or site of uh, special scientific uh, interest. And that leaves about 46%, which you could call other countryside, some of which will be useful for food, production, other bits are not so good, maybe not very attractive, and even parts of the Greenbelt are not particularly attractive land. The Greenbelt doesn't have an inherent aesthetic value, it's just there to protect sprawl, protect uh, cities and towns from, from growing. So the point I'd make is there's no shortage of land. I, I've flown from Stansted many times, and if you fly over East Anglia, um, you're often, I'm often staggered by how vast the countryside is and how much land there is and I know one of the arguments uh, used by countryside campaigners is that uh, we need all the land we've got in the countryside for food production um, but I think one of the I've blogged about this a couple of times one of the issues for me in the countryside is that actually not all of that countryside is used for food production um, we don't have to be self-sufficient in food in my view you know, we're not a peasant economy. <laughs> we can import food. Um, but if you look at the countryside as a whole, there's about, uh, about 600,000 hectares which are used for horses, most of which are not working horses. They're just leisure horses. Um, 600,000 hectares, to put that into context, is about half of the total area of England that's built upon, uh, the 10% the of England. So lots of land being used for horses, lots of land being used for golf courses. I've nothing against golf, but again, um, this isn't productive land. It's not being used to produce food, or as, as with horses, we're not using uh, horses for food, hopefully. Um, so again, there's plenty of land. It's just, for me, it's just a case of how we prioritise the use of land. There is the land available, and if we make sensible decisions about land use, we can build the homes that we need and I think that's something that hopefully we can discuss as we go along today. I think the other aspect of housing supply is the, the house building industry. Um, the house building industry has changed dramatically over the last uh, 40 years. Um, back in 1960 the top 10 house builders produced 9% of all the houses that we built uh, in that year but in by um, 2004, the top 10 were producing 46%. So there's been a massive agglomeration of uh, house builders, uh, mergers, Taylor Woodrow and um, Wimpy, for example, to form Taylor Wimpy. Um, and going alongside that, there's been a real decline in the number of small house builders. Uh, where I live in Cambridge, it's a Victorian street. And back in about 1900, 1890, very small local house builders were just buying up individual plots and building maybe three, four houses a year and that's all gone and you can tell them because they each have distinctive um, crenellations or uh, bay windows, all of a different style all of that's gone um, so there are very few smaller house builders now producing any kind of volume and I think this is a real issue that needs to be looked at because there is an argument that the house building industry is acting as a semi-cartel where it's more interested in holding onto land or speculating in land rather than producing the number of, of homes that we need. So that's another aspect of uh, 
supply issues. I think just uh, touching on public opinion, I mean clearly the public have a, have a say about housing and it's important that that's, they are involved in where housing should go and I think one of the things the government's done is to try and uh, introduce neighbourhood plans to allow local people to say where uh, house building should go and, and to guide development. I think one of the dangers of that is that, is that if we look at um, voting at the last election in 2010 only about 52% of 18 to 24, uh, 18 to 24 year olds voted so 52% of 18 to 24 year olds voted compared to 75% of 65 year and above uh, voted so massive disparity in voting among those different age groups and unfortunately it's the younger people who need the homes who don't tend to get involved in housing campaigns or in uh, local elections whereas the people who don't want their homes are the ones who tend to vote and I think that's a real issue for local uh, democracy um, again there is a disparity because I think people now are recognising that there is a housing crisis 80% in the latest polling from Murray Ipsos Murray said there is a housing crisis but they don't think there's a housing crisis in their area so there's a mismatch between what people see locally and what they see nationally and again I think this is a real issue because if one local authority or just a handful of local authorities don't meet their obligations because they think they're okay then that has a knock-on effect on everyone else so everyone has to play their part in meeting the, the housing needs across the country as a whole in order to, uh, to solve that problem Finally, just to set the scene, I think it's just worth um, touching on gypsies and travellers. I know Andrew's going to talk about this later because I know you've got to look at sites for gypsies and travellers within the, uh, the district. Um, I know that this is an emotive issue and that people do get worked up about gypsies and travellers and issues about mess and, and disruption and so on. But I think it's just m worth mentioning that um, gypsies and travellers, they are recognised as an ethnic group in their own right and they do have much worse uh, outcomes in terms of their health in terms of education in terms of uh, life expectancy and so on and I think that's something that we need to all recognize about um, as we go forward with that and I think there are cultural issues about the way travelers live in terms of how they separate their life in in the caravan and outside the caravan and, and washing and all that kind of thing it's worth looking into those things because they do need to have proper sites with proper sanitation and proper uh, facilities in order to, to, to live a, a decent life, I think. So I'll just put a couple of slides up about, about that. You can read those later, but um, there's just a few facts and figures there. And this comes from a, a ministerial uh, work, working group, government ministerial working group that came in um, 2012. So uh, CLG looked at this. And these were, these were some of the figures that they put together. So I've just hopefully kept to time there. I'm going to be chairing today, so I'll hopefully keep everyone else to time as well. Um, but I, just a few issues there which hopefully set the scene for today and um, give you some food for thought, hopefully, about the topics that you're going to be talking about. I'm happy to deal with any questions. Yes? Hello? Did you have a question? Do we have any um, uh, roving microphones? If you could just say who you are. Thank you. 
Um, as council, we've worked quite hard to um, achieve our five-year housing supply, on occasions probably giving planning permission where a couple of years ago, ten years ago, we certainly wouldn't have given. And one of the problems I perceive is that what's happening is because the government has not backed up its um, NPPF by um, equivalent strong measures for developers, I think we're in danger of having a tremendous amount of land banking and very little building because, um, as we all appreciate, it's the market that decides how many houses are built, not the government, not us. Uh, and, you know, if, if the builders we have given planning permission to had built all the houses, um, we would be not having a five-year housing supply in years to come, as I perceive we may well have. Have you any ideas what the government could do to actually enforce or take away planning permission? Because at the moment, I think we have a tremendous amount of land in Uttlesford which I think is being land-banked and not being built on. Sorry, who, who are you? Could you just say your name and where you're from? Sorry? Could you just say your name and where you're from? No, I'm Chris Cant, and I'm a district councillor, and I'm also a parish councillor. Okay. It's just for the audio. I come from Stebbing, which is um, sort of on okay. the fringes of Ottlesford. Um, I think in, in, answer to, in answer to the question, there, there, there is lots of debate about land banking. I think many people have looked at this. Kate Barker looked at it back in 2004 when she wrote her report for the, uh, the government and didn't find any major evidence of land banking, although it, it's still an issue that's bubbling under. Um, the latest review that the Labour Party have done, the Lions Review, which came out a couple of weeks ago, what they're suggesting in there is that there should be a limit on planning permissions, so kind of use it or lose it um, requirement. So once you're given planning permission, unless you start building within a certain time frame, that, that then otherwise it passes on to someone else. So I think it is an issue that is being looked at by some of the parties, but uh, I, I don't know. I don't think there's currently a, a requirement that you have to. Well, obviously, when you get your planning permission, you have to start building within a certain period, but um, I don't know if you can enforce that over the longer term. Uh, thank you very much. Keith Eden, a district councillor for Saffron Walden. Uh, first of all, I welcomed your comment about the oligopoly in the building industry, which hopefully Mr. Mitchell was listening to, uh, because I've been on about that for several years, and I can give lots of evidence that it is an oligopoly, but that's another point. I really wanted to raise the question why you've let the government off the hook, because the reality is our focus is on the health service, whereas in, in 1951 it was clearly on housing, and we have a monetary policy which is doing exactly the wrong thing for housing, uh, because we have this obsession with quantitative easing. We, we fail to understand the damage it's doing in terms of creating asset bubbles, and Lon the London housing market's a perfect example. So I wonder why we shouldn't be actually saying to the government, please could you address this issue, because they have the means of actually delivering it. We're at the wrong end of this argument as a district council. We can do our little bit. But the real requirement is to, is to pressure on the government to say that housing is as, if not more important than health. And therefore the balance is wrong, and therefore you need to address the issues of monetary policy and what it does to asset bubbles. London house prices are driven entirely by an, by an asset bubble. It's not driven by anything else. It's because money is too cheap. 
Um, and, and if we don't address those issues, this is going to be with us as long as we have people who don't understand the damage that quantitative easing does. Yeah, well, back in uh, 1945, Anirin Bevin was Minister for Health and Housing. So the two very much went together back in, at that time. I mean, I think you've touched on issues that are probably much wider than this conference is going to be talking about today. But, uh, I mean, clearly housing uh, supply is the issue as far as I'm concerned. Um, but the fact that interest rates are, are at historic lows, I think, is a, is a problem for the future because as soon as they go up, thousands of people are going to suddenly find themselves trapped in, potentially, in negative equity. So part of the problem there is that we've, for too long we've used housing as an economic driver rather than thinking about housing as a, somewhere to live rather than as an investment. Could we make this the last one because I think we need to move on. Um, I'm Alan Dean. I'm also a district councillor. I hope there are going to be questions from other people. Um, I'm a member for Stansted. I think Keith Eden, in a way, has touched on, on my point. It just seems to me that since the 1980s, the, the market has not been delivering and, and, and market mechanisms aren't going to sort this out and there needs to be proper intervention, either you know, resumption of, uh, of council housing building or, or something like proper investment from, from government, otherwise the matter is going to get worse. And I wonder, but I think in terms of practical things, I wonder whether you think that local authorities can do more in educating the public, because I noticed there that the point about 80% of people think there's a housing crisis, but when it comes down to your patch, it's only 44%. In other words, the problem is somewhere else, and maybe that's something that we can do locally to educate the population more about what the real situation is, to, to change perceptions, because I think it's only when there's public pressure, real public pressure to do something, that normally governments actually sit up and listen. Yeah. I think we, we face an uphill task. I think, well, going back to Churchill, I think we just need to keep buggering on, you know, with the, trying to get the message across. It is difficult because housing is not at the top of the list of public uh, issues. I think my immigration or the NHS are there or thereabouts. Housing tends to be down in about ninth or tenth place. And I think that's because most people are decently housed, you know, so it's not, for them, it's not an issue. For the people who aren't decently housed, it is an issue but they've got so, much, uh, so many other things going on in their lives that they haven't got the time to lobby and to be involved in the kind of campaigns that we see in, in some places. I think it's a perennial issue for all local authorities and for governments to really put localism at the centre of house building. You know, how do you do that? I think that's a real challenge for all of us. You know, how do we persuade people living in a place like this that actually we do need houses and let's talk about where they're going to go? I think that's a real issue because too often there's just a knee-jerk reaction. No, we don't want it. And it, it's trying to turn that around, I think, is, is the real issue. So. Okay, shall we move on? I think next we've got Simon who's going to talk about uh, housing and health and how they all link together. Thank you.
Thank you. Good morning. Um, Apologies again, I'm afraid Helen Taylor couldn't be here today due to family illness. Um, I've worked very closely with Helen and we're very pleased to have the opportunity to come along and give a, a social care perspective this morning. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about how we see the county from a social care point of view and some of the challenges we face around changes in the health and social care system and a little bit about how we are currently viewing housing in the county. So we live in a large and complex county, 1.4 million people, five clinical commissioning groups who organise healthcare locally, five acute hospitals who we work with, and we also do health commissioning with the unitary authorities in Southend and Thurrock. We have some significant financial challenges. The County Council needs to save £237 million by 2017. I'll say a little bit about that on a, another slide. And the five clinical commissioning groups have an £84 million funding gap by 2018-19. We're seeing significant pressures on local hospitals with A&E departments consistently failing to meet targets such as the four-hour wait times. We've got some long-standing system weaknesses. The Mid-Essex Clinical Commissioning Group is, among, is the 11th most distressed health economy nationally and the 9th most underfunded clinical commissioning group in, in the country. Um, given that we are quite a, a wealthy county generally, it's, it's quite surprising. Um, we, we are a large, and pro large, prosperous and healthy county, but we do have some significant variations in health and life expectancy. So Jaywick Ward in Tendring is the, one of the most deprived wards in the whole country, and it has the lowest life expectancy in the whole county of Essex. I think the last figure I saw was the life expectancy in, in Jaywick is about 17 years less than Uttlesford. So Uttlesford has the best life expectancy in the county. Population is changing in Essex. It's growing and it's ageing. Um, the first bullet point, the population is getting older and larger. I think the larger means more numerous, although we do also have problems with childhood obesity, so perhaps the population is getting larger in every sense. Um, we saw a 6% growth in population between 2001 and 2011 and projecting a further 20% growth by 2033. We currently have just over 18% of Essex residents over 65, which is greater than the national average. In the next few years, between 2008 and 33, the working age uh, population is set to fall from 60% to 55% and the older population to grow uh, to increase to 28% of the total. So by 2031, there'll be more people over 60 than under 20. Now, I, I don't suggest that ageing in itself is a problem. There are lots of positives about ageing. People are getting healthier as, as compared to previous generations. But the issue is about frailty, quality of life and the health and social care support that a, a growing, frail elderly population might need. Going back to the financial challenges then... The total county council, Essex County Council budget is, is just under a billion, 932 million currently, a very large sum of money. 
the largest single spend within that is on social care at 561 million. And some of you may know, but social care is, is funded on the basis of an assessed need. Uh, and at the moment, that, that's set locally, and the County Council will meet what we determine as critical or substantial needs. Under the Care Act, which I'll say some more about in a moment, those criteria will, will be set nationally. We also undertake financial assessments of people's ability to pay. So it's partly about your need, partly about your ability to pay for the costs associated with that. And some of what we spend is, is statutory. We, we have to meet statutory duty. Uh, other spend is discretionary. HRS is housing-related support, and it's the area of spend I, I've been most closely associated during the seven years I've worked in Essex. And it's funding for uh, support in places like sheltered accommodation, women's refuges, um, supported living for people with disability. So... We've made progress already on achieving savings. We've saved over 364 million over the last four years, but we still have the 237 million to save in the next three. And part of that is about new demand of people coming through into the system needing social care. And it's partly about the ageing population. It's partly about the complexity of need that we're now seeing as well. So, as a council, we've tried to distill what we want to do into seven corporate aspirations, as we're calling them. Uh, I won't go into all of those, but I'll, I'll highlight uh, people in Essex enjoying good health and well-being, people in Essex living in safe communities and protected from harm, and people in Essex can live independently and exercise choice and control over their lives. And those are the ones that are of most interest to, to myself as, as a social care commissioner uh, and probably to yourselves uh, in terms of housing. But we do also have an interest in sustainable economic growth uh, and the role that housing might play in that. We are facing significant reforms as well. Some of you will have heard of the Care Act, uh, which will, most of which comes into being in April next year. And it's been described as the, most, uh, the, the biggest reform of social services since the 1940s. It, it's substantial. The four key things that are most relevant this morning are about duties around promoting individual well-being, preventing the need for care and support arising in the first place, promoting integration of care and support with health, and providing information and advice to enable people to find their own solutions. In terms of prevention, we are required to develop a prevention strategy by April 2015, and the guidance is very explicit about the role that housing should play in that and the need for a partnership approach with housing authorities and other stakeholders. And we will beginning, uh, be beginning consultation on that with the Health, Housing and Social Care Partnership Forum this month and also the Essex Housing Officers Group. And part of that will be asking district partners how they would like to be involved in developing that strategy. Another feature of the Care Act is that it creates a cap on the costs of care. So the costs that we as individuals might have to pay one of the implications for that is that we would need to assess and find some way of accounting for people who are paying for their own care before it becomes our responsibility. Some challenges broadly, 
we, we do welcome the CARE Act. We think that health and social care working together more closely with the person at the centre of that makes much more sense. People are not concerned about whether it's health or social care that are delivering a service. They want a good service that's joined up. We, I, I won't say too much more about uh, financial challenges, but we do think the, the reforms are underfunded. The eligibility, which I touched on earlier, we will no longer have an ability to define who is eligible for social care locally. Having sampled uh, a number of cases to see what we think the impact of that is, 22% of cases who, which would not have been eligible under our own cri old criteria would be in future which has a, a huge impact on the need for the provision of services and the associated costs. The reforms are huge and there's been very little time to, to bring them together. And health and social care, although there are good examples of joint working, traditionally it's two very different cultures trying to work together. We're also concerned that the market in terms of um, organisations who might provide the joined up health and social care uh, services in future uh, have not yet had opportunity to develop themselves into vehicles that can deliver the kinds of services we will need on the scale that we will need. The Better Care Fund is, is one aspect of the CARE Act. So it, it's a pooled fund for some health and social care funding. Uh, it, it isn't new money. Um, I know we've had a number of approaches uh, around accessing the new money in the Better Care Fund. It, it isn't new. It's existing funding packaged differently. And we have developed plans with the, the five clinical commissioning groups which have now been submitted to NHS England for approval for next year. So some of the key points, um, the Better Care Fund will support new provider models for integration between community health, community care and primary care providers. So that's likely to mean social workers, district nurses, etc., working much more closely and more in community settings, aiming to take pressure off uh, the acute hospitals. Um, it will support investment in reablement funding. So when people come out of hospital, the emphasis is on giving them a service which will help them rebuild skills that they may have had, rather than putting in a package of care which is appropriate for them on discharge, but actually as their skills improve, they may not need that level of support. And we're particularly keen to in, uh, avoid people being admitted to residential care at a time when they're at their worst really having come out of, of, of hospital and we want to give people the chance to, to recover and to be able to live more independently. The Better Care Fund, as I say, we, we, we do support it but at the moment the fund is, is set up for two years next year and the following year and given the scale of, of reform that's required that really isn't long enough. Um, also, we're concerned that the, the targets that were required to put in, uh, which are again things like reducing uh, the waiting times in A&E, uh, are not really the, the, the best indicators. It, it's meant to be about making the community services better and over time moving resources out of the acute hospitals so you prevent people from going in. You do work with people who are at risk of falling and of getting ill health to avoid the hospital admission in the first place. So it's, it's feeling a little bit skewed um, is how we would see it. We have brought together with, with the CCGs a five-year plan 
Um, so although we're required to come together for two years for the BCF, we, we have looked further than that. Um, so using the BCF as, as a vehicle for what we would like to do locally anyway, what is a good thing to do? Um, and the five-year plan has four high-level objectives, which you'll see there. So promoting independence, choice and control, which is very close to one of the ECC ambitions anyway. Improving our outcomes for the same or less money. Having a healthy and happy Essex, uh, particularly tackling some of those health inequalities. Uh, and providing safe and high-quality services for the citizens of Essex. The the role of the County Council in housing is an interesting one in, in that we have no statutory duties, for instance, around homelessness or provision of housing. However, um, we, we do recognise the, the very fundamental importance of, of housing as a determinant of, of health. Um, we are currently developing a housing strategy and that will encompass areas such as supported housing, economic growth, the infrastructure requirements which as a county council we would be expected to provide and the implications for schools. We know that we need to expand delivery of, of some of the provision that we have. So over the past two years we, we've had a £6 million capital grant fund for adults with disabilities where we've contributed capital to encourage the uh, deliverability or affordability of, of new supported living schemes, usually in partnership with district councils, supported housing providers, and sometimes the Homes and Communities Agency. We've also had a, a, a similar fund for extra care housing, which some of you will be familiar with. So extra care housing is accommodation for older people who may have current care needs or expect to develop care needs. And it provides self-contained accommodation of a good quality with an on-site 24-hour care presence. So those care needs can be met on-site and people will hopefully be able to remain in place uh, for substantially longer. Um, partly it's an alternative to residential care for people with very high care needs, uh, but it's also seen as, as more independent, more enabling, and for some an insurance policy uh, as, as they become older and frailer. The delivery that we've had, we, we've delivered a, a small number of, of schemes, I think three or four across the county during my time. Our modelling now suggests that we're short of about 2,500 extra care places in the county if you multiply up the national statistics. And plainly the way that we've been delivering three or four schemes now and again is a drop in the ocean that's not going to address that. So we are now um, building the case for some different ways of delivering uh, large quantities of that kind of housing at scale to get near that 2,500. We are offering capital investment, particularly where that will help reduce our ongoing revenue costs. So if we can fund more supported living, which might be more suitable for people in residential care and also less costly, that would be a good thing. We've also worked on a public sector land project, and we were hearing earlier about the availability of land and concerns around that. So we've mapped the land which the county council owns, but also worked with partners in district, borough and city councils, and with colleagues in the NHS to look at sites or buildings which we could offer uh, for development.
Um, quite often when talking to developers of supported living, we're hearing that actually capital is, is less of an issue, availability of land is, is more of a problem. So we're trying to ad address that. And we will be having an event in, in January, I think the 20th of January, in Colchester, um, to work with districts, developers and others to look at whether this is an adequate offer, what else is needed in order to improve the delivery of the, particularly the supported accommodation that we need to see in the county. And finally, to end with, some of the current activity in Uttlesford that we're involved in. We've been working with colleagues in the District Council here and with uh, partners of East Living, a uh, registered social landlord, to develop extra care accommodation in Saffron Walden where we're making a contribution of around about a million pounds uh, al alongside contrib significant contributions from other partners which will ensure the delivery of around 70 units of extra care in Saffron Walden and we're making capital contribution of just under 400,000 to help the delivery of a six-bedded supported living scheme for adults with disabilities. And we look forward to further partnership working and an expansion of, of those schemes. Thank you. Thank you for standing in at such short notice. Um, we will have questions at the end of all the speakers after the break this morning, so any, if you have burning issues, please make a note of them now, and uh, we'll raise those when uh, all the speakers are done. Uh, our next speaker is Doug Mallins, who's from Uttlesford District Council. He's going to talk about uh, council house building within the district. Once he can find his presentation. Here it comes. Uh, here we go. <coughs> yeah. uh, good morning, everyone. Um, as I've been introduced, my name is Doug Malins. Um, I'm the um, Housing Development Manager for Uttlesford District Council, and I've been asked to give a bit of a run-through the, on the, um, uh, the Council's um, house-building programme. So I was going to go through um, some various schemes that we're working on at the moment. Um, as Councillor Redfern mentioned earlier, um, actually I'll do that. Uh, the Council implemented the HRA self-financing back in April 2012. So it's been from that date, really, that the Council has had an opportunity to build new Council houses. So um, you're only looking at three years ago, so hopefully you'll see that when we go through some of the stuff we, we, that we've done, that we've actually made really good strides in moving forward. Um, when the self-financing came in, um, members and tenants agreed to opt to not pay the loan for five years, um, and therefore only paying interest. And what this has meant is this has actually provided the headroom within, within the budget so that we can actually then start to build new council housing. Recently, we've also met with the Homes and Communities Agency uh, to discuss the potential of bringing grants into some of our developments and they're very open to that suggestion and we'll be working with them to actually try to bring grants into schemes to actually make money go make money go that bit further in terms of the program and the land we're looking at i mean it's, it's predominantly sheltered housing sites where we've got sheltered housing schemes that are not fit for purpose for meet current standards um, Garage sites and, and, and other sort of parking areas. Um, obviously, as you know, a lot of the garages that are, that are councils own these days, you can't even fit a car in them. 
or you can fit the car in, you just can't get out of the car once you're in it. Um, and then other little infill sites. So we're looking at all these sorts of sites in terms of moving forward with our own development programme. Um, so I've got some examples of what, we're, what we've been doing and where we're looking at. The, f the first one is um, Holloway Crescent in Lead and Roading. Um, this was actually before my time. So uh, um, this is the council's first completed development, completed in July 13. Um, again, it was a site of a sheltered housing scheme, uh, which was predominantly uh, five small bungalows and a number of bedsit flats. Again, bedsit accommodation for older people these days is, is not really fit for purpose, so something needs to be done with that. Um, the scheme was developed in two phases, um, providing um, five new replacement bungalows and also eight houses uh, with a mixture of two and three bedroom homes. And again, the, the standards that they were built to co for sustainable homes level three, so they're energy efficient, good quality housing. Um, and I've got some pretty pictures for people to see. There's the bungalows there, and then example of the houses that were built. And I say this handed over in um, July 13. Moving forward, um, the next scheme which, we're, which we've got is Mead Course Stansted Mount Fitship. Again, another sheltered housing scheme consisting of bedsits. There's a theme, as I'm sure you can pick up. Uh, but also there's some adjacent garage sites and sort of backland parking land. Uh, and what we've looked at here is a two-phase development. Um, the first phase is currently on site um, and looking for the first phase to hand over in December of this year. Um, the second phase will then start with, because what we have is we've built on the garage sites and the open space first of all, so that the people with some, still some tenants living in the sheltered scheme at the moment will move to their new homes on completion of phase one. Then we can do the demolition of phase two and, and then that can commence. Um, and so phase, phase two is looking at a handover in September 2015. What it's going to provide is 20, 29 new homes, a uh, mixture of bungalows, houses and apartments. Uh, some, this is work ongoing at the moment. Uh, this is still a building site. This is the phase one site. The, the way this was developed was through a, um, a framework called SCAPE which is a framework which is run by Wilmot Dixon building contractors and also Kia building contractors. So this, is, this is something which um, <coughs> enables councils in terms of their procurement to actually bring in a whole team in terms of architects and other consultants and contractors and it comes as a package. Uh, and this has worked very well on this, on this site and the, and the programme is, is, is on schedule. But moving forward, we've actually moved away from that and are looking to actually do things much more Internally, and employing our own consultants ourselves moving forward to get to get the get to continue the development program. So this brings us on to Caton's Lane, Saffron Walden. Uh, this is a garage site, um, 40 garages um, on the site. Again, the problem being with them, they're too small for cars, for modern cars these days. Um, they also, it's in a, in a back area of land, so it does attract antisocial behaviour. So it was something that the council wanted to look at in terms of redeveloping this for, for much needed council housing. Um, we, uh, the garages would be demolished uh, to, and be replaced with six houses, a mixture of one and two bedroom homes. We achieved planning permission on that on the 15th of October 2014, which is great news, uh, the last planning committee uh, cycle that was. Um, the, Procurement's underway for our building contractor. There's an advert out at the moment, um, so we'll be tendering for building contractors to take this, pro take this on, and we're 
programming a start on site for March 2015. Uh, be about an eight, seven to eight month build program on that, so um, should have handover before the end of next year. So again, six new homes. I've got a little um, architect's impression as to what that sort of is going to look like. So it's going to be a lovely, a lovely, lovely little development to be working on. Okay. Reynolds Court in Newport. This is um, probably one of the biggest schemes that the council are looking at at the moment and a, and a real challenge. Um, it's a sheltered scheme again, built in 1971. Um, Two-storey, pitched roof. Um, consists of 31 flats within that, within that accommodation, of which 22 are bedsit flats. There are no lifts in the building. The, due to the ground levels, the internal arrangement of the flats is all on split levels of ramps and steps. So it doesn't really, again, meet modern standards and is, and is not fit for purpose at this time. And I think the importance of this, it, it, in putting some context to it, and I think um, it's been alluded to previous speakers, is obviously we have got an ageing population within Athelsford, and I think that was reported in the press very recently as well. And I think the council are keen to make sure that, you know, in terms of its own housing stock, and for older people, it's making sure that that housing stock is fit for purpose to meet that, that ongoing challenge. So, again, this is going to be a two-phase development because we have got residents living in the building at the moment. There are a number of flats which are empty because the scheme is hard to let. But if you know Newport, it's a lovely location. Um, the town has got a lot of amenities to it. Um, and this shelter scheme is in an excellent location within the, within, within the village. So it should be something which actually is a sought after form of accommodation for, for older people uh, and that's what we want to try and make it. Um, we've done detailed tenant consultation with the residents who are still living in there and I think one of the things that we learned as we're moving forward is, I mean I've looked at drawings and architects drawings for many 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 years and can see it exactly what's planned and I think what we found was that actually that's not the case for everybody who's not used to looking at drawings. So one of the things we did with, with this, we actually did some site visits where we went out to look at schemes that had been redeveloped and schemes that had been remodelled and let people actually see, the tenants see, what we're doing there firsthand and that's how they got a real view as to what was possible with, this, with the scheme here at Reynolds Court. In terms of the process where we are at the moment, um, we're going through our sort of pre-planning advice. We're doing consultations, we're consulting with um, the wider community this week on the scheme, uh, the parish council. So things are progressing forward because we're aiming to, to submit a planning application in December for this uh, development, um, which, subject to us achieving that planning, would, would hopefully mean a start and site programme for July 2015. Uh, the proposals, and I've just got, again, a, a 3D architect's um, drawing on this. We're looking for something very contemporary. Um, the, the area where it's at the moment, the, the, the existing architecture is, uh, is nothing, nothing spectacular, so it's not something you'd necessarily want to, to, to repeat. So we're looking at something very contemporary to provide 43 new apartments, um, mostly one bedroom but uh, a number of two bedroom apartments. There will be two lifts within the building, um, large communal rooms, courtyard gardens, uh, a hairdressing salon, so buggy store and charging store. So it's actually something that's bringing it up to, to modern day standards and fully DDA compliant, both within the building and within the apartments. So people who are wheelchair users uh, 
would be able to live there very comfortably. So this is something which obviously we're very excited about and are progressing and I say we're looking to have our planning application submitted in December. And then the last one I'm going to mention today is Hathley, Hathley Court. Again, another sheltered scheme um, in Saffron Walden. Um, and I don't know if you know where Hathley Court is. But it's, it's down by the Common. So it's in an ex-location within Saffron Walden. Um, level access through to the town so, uh, and, the, and the facilities that the town offers. Um, all the accommodation within the existing building is one-bedroom accommodation. The problem being is a number of the bedrooms are very small on a, on a lot of the flats. You've got very small bedrooms in some of the flats and very small kitchens. Um, other issues around, around, the, around the building are that the commun communal facility, the common room, is on the second floor. And just because of the nature of the building, it's quite a, it was, it's a very large room, it is quite dark uh, and, and uninviting. And obviously, with shelter schemes, quite often you want to have somewhere where you just can pop in, have a coffee, and I, and I sit down in the chat. Well, this, this common room almost feels like it's, you'd only use it if there was a, a specific function that had been arranged. So we wanted to look at that. There are issues around the entrance to the building, which is a bit nondescript at the moment. There's no buggy, and char buggy charging point. So we're actually looking at all these sorts of issues. And again, we've... Because, again, this, this, this is a fully let uh, bit, of bit of accommodation with, with, with tenants. And again, it was a case of... The, the plans, showing people the plans were one thing, but we actually took the tenants to go and see a place called Beaumont House in Coggleshaw, which is owned by Greenfields, Greenfields Community Housing. And whilst it has slightly different problems when, it first, when they first looked at redeveloping that and remodelling that, again, it was fairly similar to the problems that we have at Hathley uh, in terms of that, that those are bed sits, but we've got one beds, but very small one, one beds. And what they've done is they've, they've converted that and they've made a most beautiful scheme with, you know, one-bedroom one apartments fully fitted out and our, our tenants were able to go around and have a look at that and once they, see, they saw what was possible um, they wholeheartedly agreed that that's, this is what they wanted to have done in their shelter scheme because you know, at the end of the day it is going to mean disruption for them there will be some moving around but yet I think the tenants all saw that the benefits in, in progressing with this and in terms of the proposals we're looking to do um, got to looking to create a new um, entrance lobby with a, with a canopy so actually you'd know where you're going to at the front of the building. Um, a ground floor common room, we're actually removing one of the flats to create a ground floor common room with a sort of garden room off the back of that and some external seating uh, as well with a small extension to another wing to actually put two new flats in so whilst we lose one for the common room we then gain a net, have a net gain of one because we're putting two, two back. But all of what, what's, what's crucial to all this is all the existing flats will have a, a small pod extension which goes vertically up the building um, so that whilst it provides perhaps another four or five square metres of accommodation, the difference that makes in the internal uh, arrangements of those apartments is, is, is incredible. You end up with a, a double bedroom, um, kitchen lounge, um, in every case, there'll be um, Juliet balconies so that people will be able to have some external space coming into their, into their accommodation. So really making it much more light and airy accommodation and uh, I'd say fit, fit for purpose in that respect. Um, other things we're able to do is look at providing a scooter store with, scooter sco store with charging points and also looking to decorate and upgrade the communal facilities all the way throughout the building. Uh, so 
it'll actually be something which um, will be spectacular to go and see, and, and the tenants are very excited about that. Um, it is going to be a phased development, which does make it quite tricky, um, and we're waiting in terms of how we procure the, the contractor. We need to contract on board early, and at sort of the earliest point we can, because they need to be giving us the, the information on how best we would phase this development, because clearly health and safety is very important for our tenants who are living in that building, so it needs to be done in a safe and effective way, but also as quickly as possible so that disruption is kept to a minimum. Um, planning application is currently submitted for this uh, scheme and should be being held by, heard by the planning committee on the uh, 12th of this month. Uh, so if that all goes through according to plan, we're aiming to actually look for a sort of start on site uh, in around sort of late March, early April time so at least when the weather's getting a little bit better I hope so um, and this is sort of well the, as you see on the, on the, on the scheme there the white, the white bits are where the, the pod extensions are going onto the side of the building to actually just give that little bit of extra space for all the, all the accommodation um, and that's me thank you uh, thank you very much Doug, for that presentation. I think it's really exciting that local authorities are starting building council housing again. And it's uh, one of the great achievements, I think, both of this government and the last government when the negotiations started. And the LGA, the Local Government Association, did a fantastic job of negotiating that settlement uh, with the government. So it's, it's good news. So our next speaker is Ulrika uh, Macchiarello. Is that correct? Not bad. Um, <laughs> Sounds like a, an alliance between Sweden and Italy. Um, no, Germany and Italy. Germany, actually. okay. Yeah. Um, who's going to talk about exception sites, which individual villages and towns obviously have a huge contribution potentially to make to meeting housing needs. So Hasto, the expert, so let's hear about that. Thank you very much. And thank you very much, Stratelford, for inviting me to have the opportunity to speak to you. Um, I will talk about rural housing on exception sites, but I really want to take it a little bit further and talk about sustainable housing in villages and what kind of costs that entails and whether it's viable or not for housing association to take schemes like that forward. Uh, just a little bit about Hastow. Uh, we are a rural housing provider and we specialise in delivering um, housing on rural exception sites we work in a close partnership with parish council and district councils to address that local housing need. Uh, the current policy in Atlesford is um, on their exception site policy that we need to look for land which is outside uh, the development boundary but it needs to adjoin the settlement boundary. It also needs to be 100% affordable housing and it needs to meet the particular need of that local village. Um, and the, any development proposal needs to be appropriate for that settlement. Now, the draft local plan expands a little bit further in line with the new NPPF, and that means that we can now also look at including some open market housing uh, for cross-subsidy purposes. Now, Hasto, as I said, we are a rural housing provider, but we are really keen in delivering sustainable housing in villages. 
Um, and really the background to that is that some of our strategic amb ambitions really drive us towards that. Uh, we as a housing provider, we, went, we want to be innovative and we also want to work to protect the climate. It's quite important for us as a group. Also one of the issues, especially in rural areas, is that we are faced with real, real drastic fuel poverty. Um, in rural areas, especially where we don't have mains gas, uh, we really see a 27% increase in fuel poverty, and especially on affordable housing schemes, that, that has an even higher impact. So it's really something we feel is important for housing providers to look at. And we all know that energy prices are go only going in one direction, and it's a real issue uh, for the future, and we really do need to address that. Um, we're also looking at ways how we can del deliver housing which is replicable. We don't want to just do an exemplar scheme and have it as a showcase. We want to work to see how we can deliver the majority of our program to a really high sustainable um, standard. And we feel also as a housing provider that is a way how we can invest our money wisely and that we're delivering value for money, quite important for us. So how do we do it as a housing provider? We obviously work on a lot of small schemes in, in villages. And uh, so we need to look that our homes are really energy efficient. We, we want to deliver a really good quality of standard. That also then benefits our residents. And because we are having a stake in our property, so we are landlord, these remain our houses, it's, it's good value for us to look at building them to a high standard. All our homes which we build in the villages are normally to code for sustainable homes level four um, or the equivalent standard because that's a standard which is soon no longer be applicable to housing, for housing associations. Um, we've looked quite carefully how we can achieve uh, sustainable housing and we as a group, we feel that a fabric-first approach it makes the most sense. So what we're looking, we're really looking at um, the thermal envelope of a house. So we're looking at high, highly insulating the walls, the roofs, the ground of, the, of, a, of a building. Um, so that once you've got the, the house warmed up, really the heat can't go anywhere. It stays in the house. And if you need less energy to heat a house, then that must be good for everyone. Uh, we always try where we can, obviously it, it depends on what's available, that we have gas central heating. As I already said, a lot of villages are not on mains gas and then we're looking at other ways of heating house through air source heat pumps, ground source heat pumps. We're also looking at uh, solar thermal hot water and if needs to be sometimes also at PV panels where they um, generate electricity. Uh, we also known in the area um, and nationally that we are probably one of the largest passive house providers in the um, affordable housing sector. Uh, so passive house, I'll just expand a little bit more about that. Passive house is a very, very highly sustainable form of uh, building and it addresses the energy and comfort standard of a, of a development. So. I've already said high levels of insulation is really quite important and um, that's the principle of the passive house to um, 
provide really, really high insulation in the walls, but also the doors and the windows, so that all the internal fabrics are, um, are warm to the touch, and they're usually there's a set standard that they need to be about 17 degrees at all times, at a minimum. We then also apply really, really airtight building, so all the warm air stays inside the house, and we don't have any con uncontrolled heat loss. We avoid any thermal bridging in a development, and then because we have them built very airtight, we obviously need to uh, introduce some really good ventilation. So we have uh, high-performing uh, mechanical ventilation with heat recovery. And that means that we've got fresh filtered air provided 24-7 in any house. Um, and that also deals with um, heat recovery, so we don't lose any, any warmth which is generated in, in the building. And we also utilize um, occupancy and solar gain. Um, so the benefits of passive house, um, they're, they're, they're great. Um, we, we, we look at the, the um, energy pressures and environment pressures which are uh, being put upon us in any case. We also really can achieve um, tackling the fuel poverty in these uh, developments. Um, up to 90% savings on heating costs. We've got um, our first scheme, which we've completed in Wimbish. We've um, studied for two years um, and monitored it for two years, and we found out that some of the residents there, they live in three-bedroom houses, and their energy bills for heating on hot water are about 120 to 150 pounds a year. So there is a, a massive savings for the residents, and not only do they save all that money, they really have warm homes all through the year, um, which is a great, great achievement. Um, it does provide a really effective low-impact building technique, and it's very easy for the residents to live in these houses. They don't have to understand really high technical uh, things we put in the houses. As I said, the house is like a passive house, the house does it all, so the resident can be quite passive in their homes. They can just live in there, and they don't have to have a vast understanding of high technology which we put in the homes. But it all sounds great, and we'd love to do all our developments to that standard, but it does come at a cost. Um, so at the moment, we're looking at 10 to 12% increase in costs in comparison to building regulations. Clearly, there's a, a deficit in funding. That is obviously combined also with the capital grant funding in the housing sector having reduced quite, quite a lot over recent years. Um, so we, we are looking at ways how we can sort of bridge that gap because we feel it's very important and we also hear from the residents but also from parish council we're working with that they're really keen to see us building to that type of standard. So one way of um, dealing with that is by providing some open market housing on rural exception sites, which the MPPF now allows, and that can provide some cross-subsidy for the affordable but also for a higher sustainability standard. We're also looking at ways that potentially we could 
share some of the benefits with our residents because at the moment we have all the costs but the benefit, at the, all the benefit goes to the resident. So maybe by increasing rents a little bit, a little bit we could get some additional revenue income to make sure we can afford more of this high sustainability developments in the future. We're also uh, working with our consultants and contractors that we've, we've got some experience now in building these um, passive houses on to, to look how we can actually reduce the building costs so that we can reduce that difference between the building regulation standard and the passive house standard so that we can make it more affordable to build. Um, obviously we've got questions later on if anybody has got any questions. Also, we've, as I mentioned, we've got Wimbush, our first passive house scheme. We've done a two-year monitoring study uh, with help from the Technolo Technology Strategy Board. And that study has just come to an end. And on our, we've set up a, a pass, Wimbush passive house website. And in the download section, there are a couple of um, sort of a case study and also a... Um, Sorry, a summary uh, available now to download. Uh, we are also on site at the moment at Hatfield Heath with uh, our second passive house scheme in Uttlesford. And um, we are running in partnership with the Housing Association Building and Maintenance Magazine, a monthly um, article. And, and that's again available on their website. So we've seen every month we've, we've sort of just. Um, write about the progress of that scheme and there's lots of photos and sort of detailed information about Passive House just in case anybody's interested. Thank you very much. Thank you very much Eureka. I mentioned earlier we will have questions after the break for the speakers but if there are any burning issues they will all be around during the break if you want to nobble them. Uh, I suggest we do take a break now for coffee that's okay, Stephanie. Uh, and then we'll hear from Andrew and Judith after the break. And if you could reassemble by about 10 past 11, that would be really helpful. Thank you very much.
Okay. Okay, can we can we come to order and restart if you're all ready? I've been asked by um, Dan, the communications officer, to say that the world has been missing out on some of your pearls of wisdom because your mouth is not close enough to the microphone. So, I'm trying <laughs> so when you do speak, can you make sure you're speaking into the microphone? So our next uh, speaker is Andrew Taylor from uh, Uttlesford, who's going to talk about the SHMA, the Strategic Housing Market Assessment. Andrew. Thank you. And um, this, is, this is one which is certainly a bit of a graveyard shift, I suppose, after, after the tea break. So, um, uh, but this is a presentation that you do have to focus on, because if you don't, you will, you will end up with not, uh, not having a single clue what I've spoken about which is probably about the same as me talking about this. But anyway, so the housing market area is the area surrounding our district looking at where we get our housing numbers from. Our current Schmar um, is dated 2009 with an update in 2012. Um, we've had a more recent um, older people's strategy, so going back to what we've spoken about earlier and the impact for that of Uttlesford. But we, together with our partners in Epping, Harlow and East Hearts, are carrying out an updated Schmar. You have to do it on a, on a fairly regular basis. So the, the current Schmar looks a bit like this, looking at the, the type of areas. And these are geographic areas not related to uh, district boundaries, where housing prices, housing market is, is very similar, um, type of work is, or travel to work is similar. And you can see the difference... Um, areas in different colours that make up the housing market areas around us. So you can see to the north the Pull of Cambridge, you can see a bulk in the middle around Harlow, Bishop Stortford, um, in, around, around Dunmo, you can see the Pull of Chelmsford in the green on the right hand side and then down towards um, the bottom you've got a pull from London. So this is the historic data. Um, we're now producing the Shemar, our consultants are, based on more up-to-date advice from, or up-to-date uh, guidance from government. So you, you start off the whole process again each time. And what you do to build up this information is look at um, points around, so key areas around the, the, the local area which are centres of, of either population or centres of economic development or just centres focusing on where people travel to and, and live. And you can see, perhaps not surprisingly, the type of area that these nodal points, as they're called, come from within, around our district. So you've got Cambridge, um, you've got Bishop Stortford, you've got Stevenage, Luton, London to the bottom. And what you do is you build on that and say, OK, coming out from those areas, you're looking at areas where people live, work, travel to work within that certain area. And what you get is you build up patterns over time, looking at those different types of information. So you can see the big orange at the top, Cambridge. That's the travel to work. People move within that area, both to work, to buy a different house, to live, to, to shop. You've got those different areas within there. But you can see within the middle bit, you've got a whole different range of influence um, between London at the bottom and Cambridge at the top. You've got a very dominant area at South End over the far side, and you've got Chelmsford, as you expect, with, a, with a, an, an area surrounding it. Within the middle, you've got much more of a local emphasis from different areas. Our populations aren't as strongly, strongly drawn as they are in Cambridge, as an example, to live and work within one specific area. So what you do is you, you keep adding different things on, 
And this one in the orange or yellow, yellowy orange, shows the impact of London on those areas. So we, we live in, a, in an area of, uh, very easily commutable to London, and you can see in other areas um, we've, we've got similar populations around Essex, but we've got a key area of travel to work where actually the dominant force is London. So you've got those people, if they're looking at, at either travelling to work or moving a house, so if you're looking to move a house, those people just to the west of Saffron Walden might equally move to or from London as part of their choice rather than to the surrounding area. So when you're looking at developing housing markets and housing market areas and working out your number, all these different issues and impacts suddenly have a significant um, change on your overall number and your overall perspective. Now what our consultants have then done is removed the London effect effectively from the way our figures work and that suddenly makes it much more logical and a much more sensible outcome. So you can see these are the, these, removing the London influence, you can see a dominant Stevenage there on the left-hand side. You've got a dominant Chelmsford, its hinterland. And you've got, as we had before, the area in the centre around Epping, Harlow, Bishop Stortford, forming a nucleus of uh, the type of area. And then to the north of that, the focus on um, uh, from a Cambridge perspective, just coming off the top of the map. Now, what we then do to try and look at the relationship and, and check whether that work is right is look at the, these green lines. These are the um, housing rental market areas. These are the stuff put down by central government saying, actually, within these areas, the housing rental um, is, very, is broadly similar where people are looking to move into rent and in terms of, terms of value and cost. And actually, there's a fantastic correlation, luckily enough, between what the government is saying in relation to these broad housing rental areas and um, the work we've done looking at travel to work moving within those areas. So you can see the, the orange bit in the middle, the, the main focus there, the uh, L shape over on the, on the right-hand side from Chelmsford, very similar correlation between these figures. And what that does is that helps to satisfy us and give us comfort that the work that our consultants have been doing looking at those different areas is, is, is spot on. So this is the important initial building block of working out housing numbers as we have done um, over many years and moving forward. Working with our colleague councils across our local area, um, as I said East Hearts as well, so not just in our county area, because you can, as you can see from here the local authority district boundaries and the county district boundaries are completely irrelevant to where people um, live, work, move and, and, and change, change property. Now, as we've seen over many years, the figures do change. Um, and this is a, a snapshot looking back over time. Um, and the, these are government projections. These are the figures that come out from government um, in relation to the SNPP, sub-national population projections. So... This is what government thinks is going to happen over a period of time. They have different base dates. So as you can see, you've got a 2008, which is the bottom line then. Uh, blue, you've got a purple line of 2010, and a 2012 line of a, of a yellow. Now, as you can see, the dark line on the left-hand side there is the current mid-year estimates. That's the rolling update of, of assessment. And what that is doing is it's tracking very much um, 
the, uh, some of the 2012-based subnational population projection, but it's on an upward trend. It's looking at the relationship of um, the housing and population change over a period of time. And you can track the change in terms of population on this basis. So looking at the development of our Shmar, we have to pick up a whole range of different information. It's, so it's nowhere near as simple as a lot of people say, and this is, that's why I said I'm not an expert on this, which is why we employ consultants who are um, across the country and uh, re uh, nationally recognised as being um, uh, very good at this and impact, uh, have a good relationship with government in terms of setting out their, their ideas and having them accepted. The population change, though, and the reasons for that are, are quite important. Looking over the period of the last uh, 20 years or so, you can see quite a significant change in terms of the, the ch how population has been made up. You've got natural change at the bottom, so that's just births and deaths, and you can see that even with a static population, it is increasing um, just through the natural change. But what we've seen over many years is a, is a continual increase in migration. So this is people moving into the district from elsewhere. So this is not immigration necessarily, this is migration. And um, I think some of our highest migration rates come from East Hearts, Epping and, and into London. So I've, actually it's a very local change in terms of the population going back to those previous coloured areas of the geographical change of where people live and work and move. So looking at this information helps us to, um, especially when you go down into what, what these different population, uh, what the uh, elements of the population are, um, you can start looking at our need for elderly care homes and our need for smaller um, dwellings or the need for two, three, four, and you can start putting numbers on, which is what we've done in, in the draft local plan based on the evidence we've had from the 2012 Schmar. But going forward, what we need to do with our partner councils is, is do exactly the same, breaking the total figure down to work out the, the, the type of population and the type of um, resident that we are needing to be delivering our housing for. So the next steps of this work, because it's not yet complete, is looking at the historic trends. We've looked at a period, or they're looking at a period of the last 10 years in terms of the historic trends and change over that period. Uh, we have looked at a five-year period, but it's not considered to be as robust because that's over the, the, the recession period. So we need to take a longer-range viewpoint to make sure that the peaks and troughs of, of the economic cycle are evened out as much as possible. We need to review all those figures against the job forecasts. And then one of the most important things um, from the National Planning Policy Framework is looking at the review of the housing market signals. So this very much touches on what we've been talking about earlier, looking at land prices and house prices, the rents and affordability um, that Colin touched on right at the start, to ensure that we are providing the necessary um, accommodation at the right prices and the rate of development that are necessary to uh, meet the needs of our population. So this is an ongoing piece of work which will be I'm not sure when published, over the next few months, um, as a joint piece of evidence from those four councils to help with the, the, the medium-term uh, planning policies for the, for the whole area, 
and it's, it's one that uh, takes a considerable amount of time to get to that stage just because of the complexity of all the different information that goes in. So that's all I'm going to uh, mention at that moment. It's an ongoing piece of work and obviously we will, when we get ready round to publishing it, um, when, the, when the consultants have finished, we'll be able to give you more information. Thank you, Andrew. Andrew will be back after Judith to talk about Gypsy, gypsy and Traveller provision, but now it's Judith Smears who's going to talk about the situation regarding um, changes to the allocations policy. Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I just want to obviously talk to you a bit about housing allocations and homelessness within Uttlesford. Um, this sort of kind of involves some of the people who don't have a lot of choice when it comes to housing. So it's a very important sort of part of who we need to be thinking about. A bit of background. Um, our current allocations policy was implemented in January 13. We made a few tweaks and changes then, um, which took account of the Localism Act and the flexibilities that we were given under that Act into how we could um, allocate properties. There's been some further guidance since then, and... Uh, local authorities should now ensure that they demonstrate um, that they prioritise applicants with a connection, local connection to the area. The government suggested that uh, we had a minimum um, of two years should be looked at. Um, we've obviously, um, I'll go through some of the changes that we've made, but we had to take account also of what some of our neighbours were doing. At the moment we have a, um, an open kind of list where, yes, okay, we give a bit of priority for people with local connection, but you can come onto our list, but you don't get such high priority if you haven't got a local connection. But some of our neighbours have started to introduce policies because of these changes, where Epping, you now have to live there for three years, Harlow, five years. And you can see that if we didn't sort of maybe take a look at what we were doing here, we could be drawing people onto our list who can't get onto other people's lists. So we've had some consultation with um, members and with the public and with our um, partners and we've come up with some proposals for um, the allocations policy. We needed to, I mean it's one of the fundamental building blocks of sustaining, making sustainable communities and so it's got to be right and it's got to meet the council's strategic objectives. So we asked some sort of questions. Who is social housing for? Who must the council help by law? Um, who we currently give priority to for housing? And with so few properties, should we be encouraging people to join a housing register when they obviously have no hope of being housed? And is the council's current allocations policy working and working as we want it and working as members would like to see it work? So these are sort of the things that we put out there um, and came back with some answers. The changes that we're proposing to make um, are to introduce a local connection criteria that does actually bring in a need to have lived in the area for three years prior to joining the, the register. So this is a big change for us and it will make a quite a difference as to who can come onto the register and the numbers that will be able to, to join. We're looking also, we don't want to exclude obviously somebody talking about sort of older people and the needs of older people. We have to recognise that there will be older people who don't live in the district currently but who have got family and they need to move here because they need support from that family. So we don't want to restrict that from still being um, able to happen. But we've said obviously that a family needs to have got roots in Uttlesford and been here for five years and the person moving here needs to actually need support, not just want to move to Uttlesford because it's a nice area, as we all know it is. 
Um, we've also brought in a, um, or looking to bring in a connection for, uh, for employment, where we're saying that you've got to have worked in the area for at least a couple of years um, and for working for over 24 hours per week, and then again you will be allowed to join the register even if you don't meet the residency criteria. Other changes, financial eligibility. At the moment we say that you can come onto our register if you can um, not afford to open market purchase. We've had to sort of look at this again um, and we've decided that it needs to be whether you can open market purchase or rent. So if you can afford to buy a property or rent on the open market in Uttersford, then we're saying, sorry, you can't join the housing register. Also looking at people with housing-related debt and being a bit stricter on that and saying, look, you've got to address those debts before you can join the register for, other, for social housing. And you've got to demonstrate that you are making regular payments and either cleared the debt or, as I say, we're not going to sort of say you've got, you know, if it's a massive debt and there's reasons that that's drawn up, it's got to show that you've been willing to address it and make small regular payments and then you can come onto the list. You don't have to have necessarily cleared it completely. And we wanted to give a bit of priority to some of our transfer applicants. Um, we get the situation, obviously, where we get tenants who complain that they, they've been put into a flat and they're stuck in a flat and new people coming onto the register get nice new houses and they don't have much priority to get a, a house with a garden and if they've got children they sort of Gone off. <laughs> Thank you. Um, priority and because at the end of the day we'll get their vacancy, the property that they're in, back to allocate to somebody else off the register. Homelessness. Obviously, yes, we're bringing in a local connection um, criteria of three years for residency here, but that doesn't change our statutory duties under the Homelessness Act. So we still will have to pick, um, assist people who have lived here and meet the criteria for um, homelessness, and that's sort of kind of six of the last 12 months or three out of the last five years. That is statutory duty. We don't have a say on that. But we, maybe we can look at is what the offer is that we make to homelessness people that we've accepted. So there will be a distinction between homeless people who have the local connection criteria and homeless people who we accept but who don't. And that will be um, a one direct offer if you don't, can't go on the register, whereas the ones who have got a local connection can have a small amount of choice. Another one is just the penalty refusing offers, because it would be surprising, although we have a choice-based letting system, um, it's amazing how many people bid on properties, and then when we make them an offer, they decide that's not the one they actually wanted. And it does obviously delay letting properties creates a lot of paperwork. So we just wanted to concentrate people's mind a bit and say, look, you know, you're on the register, you need housing. If you're going to express interest in a property, then make sure you actually want it if you're the one who's going to get it. That's sort of a quick, very whiz through the allocation, changes to the allocations process. As I say, that at the moment is in a draft form which is going to members of the Housing Board um, in a couple of weeks' time and then it'll go to Cabinet for final approval and implementation, hopefully, in, just in the beginning of the new year. A little bit about homelessness in Nuttlesford. Now, I know the figures up there, um, if, if I was a London borough, they'd think that was incredible and <laughs> they'd be very pleased if they had figures like that. But we're not a London borough and we don't have the resources of London borough. So you have to kind of take this in context of Nuttlesford. And you can see how apart from one quarter at the end of um, last year, 
the numbers have steadily gone up over the past two years of the number of people presenting as homeless and people who have accepted where the sort of third line that homelessness prevention which is something we aim to try and do the, the housing option team work very hard at this but you can see it's getting much harder to prevent homelessness for all sorts of reasons one of the main ones being the lack of choice for a lot of the people that we are working with the private rented sector in this area is very difficult for people to access um, if they haven't got uh, a guarantor or good references and can actually afford to meet the rent. Um, the rents in Saffron Walden um, don't meet the house, local housing allowance rents that housing benefit will pay. There's a large shortfall and so it is unaffordable in Saffron Walden and actually in all parts of the district for a lot of the clients that we see. So if you're trying to prevent somebody from becoming homeless, it's what other options have you got if they can't stay where they are? And quite honestly, social housing for a lot of them is the only option. I mean, you can also see how busy we've been with the advice that we've been giving. Obviously, times are hard, um, not getting any better yet for the people that we see. And so for this first half of this year, we've seen as many people as the whole of last year for in-depth housing advice. The housing options team are working very hard to try and help people with major housing issues. Most people come to us not with just a housing issue. They've got all sorts of problems that we have to try and assist and help work with other agencies. For temporary accommodation for the homeless, for the ones we do have, we've got 14 units of our own accommodation and we've got four others that we're currently using within our stock um, which aren't fully furnished. I mean, we're lucky that we are still a stockholding authority so we can pull properties from our stock if times are needed when we get you know, sort of homeless people and we don't want to have them build up in bed and breakfast. But obviously, if we're using them for that way, then we're not being allocated from the housing register. We still use some nightly let accommodation in Harlow when we have emergencies and we do still use bed and breakfast. Um, it's just one of those things, it's unpredictable. You know, last week we had a family, a lady with three children, turned up on our doorstep, arrived home from Spain. Family live in Uttlesford, they can't accommodate. We had nowhere else to put them in the short term but bed and breakfast. And that's the kind of issue that we have all the time. You know, that person didn't ring in advance and warn us that they were coming, didn't say, have you got anywhere? They turn up. We have a duty, we have to help, we have to do something. The main causes for homelessness in Uttlesford, as you'll find anywhere in the country, is end of assured shorthold tendencies. It's people coming out of the private-centred sector um, and then they can't get back in it, so they have to come to us. It's not just you know, landlords, that, you know, it's not that they you know, are misbehaving and landlords are chucking them out, it's just the landlord decides that they want the property back for something, for some other reason, they're going to sell it. As the market increases, as house prices go up, people think, oh, I've rented that for a while, actually I could probably sell it now. And so properties go back on the market for sale and then they're not available for rent. And there isn't the supply of affordable private rented housing out there for people to try and carry on living in the private sector. So they have no option but to come to us. Relationship breakdown. You know, in difficult times... Relationships come under the strain. People are suffering financial problems. It puts strain on relationships and you do see more of that as being an issue. Domestic violence, again, and parental notice to quit. You know, parents will put up with having their maybe son, daughter and grandchildren living with them for a while, but then they come to the point where they say this can't go on. They give them notice and that family then have to move out and find a home of their own. 
So I said the main obstacles preventing homeless are the lack of affordable housing. So obviously the more housing properties we've got to allocate, the more people we can assist. The limited access to affordable private rented sector within the district is an issue. It's something we're working on. We try to work with landlords, but while there is a big deficit between the local housing allowance and private rental, it's not going to be something that we're going to be able to crack very easily. Housing-related debtors on a previous property, that again is an obstacle to trying to get somebody into private housing or some other forms of housing, because if you're carrying a debt, people are less likely to want you as a tenant. As I say, relationship breakdown, you know, if, if a relationship is broken down, you can't prevent homelessness. Somebody's going to have to leave that property. And chronic mental health issues is something, again, that we're seeing much more of. There are a lot of people under pressure with issues, with mental health problems, and it does lead to homelessness for some of them. The way forward, to try to be a bit positive. Um, partnership working. It's, you know, we can't do this on our own. We do need the help of private landlords. We have to find a way of cracking that um, We've got our own rent deposit scheme um, to help people get the money up front they need to get into a property, but it's again finding landlords who are willing to take people that we would pass on to them. Um, and have to work with the Housing Benefit Department with their um, discretionary handling payments, etc., to try and make that sector work. We need to work with the mental health services. People need support. We can provide a house but to keep that house, they need support, and they need support from other agencies. The CAB, keeps looking at Kate there, who's nodded occasionally with some of the things I've said, and I think, obviously, we work very well and very hard with the CAB to help a lot of the same people. We use them for debt advice, which is um, something that, obviously, a lot of the clients that we see need assistance with, and CAB do that service for us. Floating support services. You can see Carla sitting here. Um, we need the help of Essex's floating support service um, in this area Family Mosaic provide that. Again, it's about sustaining tenancies and working together to try and help people either to remain where they are or move on to better, more suitable accommodation. And again, obviously the specialist floating and um, domestic violence services as well. Jane, from Safer Places, we work with Safer Places to help people suffering from domestic violence. So it is working with partners to either try and prevent homelessness or to pick up the pieces where it can't be prevented. And uh, that was a very quick whistle-stop tour of allocations and homelessness, but uh, I can take questions, obviously, when we come to the question bit. Thank you. Thanks, Judith. And now our final speaker is Andrew Taylor again, who's going to talk briefly about provision for gypsy and travellers. <clears throat> Thank you. Yes, um, if housing numbers that I touched on earlier isn't emotive enough, this probably um, is even more emotive. Um, government set the general context for Gypsy and Traveller policy, and they did so in planning policy for traveller sites published in 2012. Um, interestingly, they published it as a separate document, separate to the National Planning Policy Framework, so it is a standalone document, um, but it needs to be read in, in conjunction with the National Planning Policy Framework. And it's quite clear what it sets out, uh, the requirements for local authorities and what we have to do. Just like housing numbers, we have to set our own pitch targets um, across the district, and we have to produce a 15-year plan, just like we have to do with housing, 15-year local plan in relation to provision of gypsy and traveller pitches. And exactly the same with housing, we have to uh, 
um, identify sites, so specifically sites within the first five years. And again, as with housing, you have to have a Gypsy and Traveller five-year housing land supply. So it's very similar, and one of the things that they have done is brought the Gypsy and Traveller element in directly to be comparable with the housing element in terms of planning policy and development of it. Um, so that's the piece of work that we've been doing over the last few years. Um, we have, and it might not feel like that to some people, but compared to previous authorities I've worked in, we have no real Gypsy and Traveller issue within the district. It's incredibly low as an overall number, um, but obviously um, when you get unauthorised sites, that does have a significant impact, and when you are looking at allocating new sites, that can cause significant concern in local areas. But what the uh, government is trying to ensure we do is plan properly. Over many years, the government have tried a range of different things um, to try and counter <coughs> council's reluctance to address this issue properly, um, creating sticks or carrots in different, different areas. But this one is now um, bringing it much more in line with the housing policy and there really is a, a stick in terms of saying, well, if you don't have allocated sites, if you don't have a five-year land supply, the principle of sites is therefore, in principle, acceptable. But what we need to do, I would suggest, is ensure that we are planning properly to ensure we get well-managed sites that fit in well um, with the existing situation and don't have a detrimental impact. This is, the photos, by the way, have nothing to do with our area. They're from a... Um, good examples that have been used in different presentations. Because, um, uh, and if you had a runway like that and you put them perhaps at either Stansted or, or Wimbish, they might not go down as well in the border of Stansted Airport as they might do in some other less well-used runways. Um, so the first thing we have to do, as with housing, is develop the need um, understand the need and you do that in exactly the same way it's looking at demographics um, specifically of the gypsy and traveller population so across Essex we uh, clubbed together as all the authorities and did a gypsy and traveller accommodation assessment which we led as a council but on behalf of all the Essex authorities and that published earlier this year and what that does is it sets out the requirement for gypsy and traveller pitches till 2033 so for a, a, a nice long period partly because that um, takes into account all the different stages of, of local plan production across Essex. Um, and you remember that I said you have to have a 15-year um, plan in relation to gypsies and travellers, just as you have to in relation to, to housing and employment and, and open space. So for Uttlesford, that means to the end of that period, 2033, and that is, you know, for those that can count more than 15 years, um, a requirement for 26 pitches to be delivered. Um, so that's, that's over um, a considerable period of time. But the critical thing, the one we have to ensure we are delivering um, both for the five-year land supply and also to ensure we allocate within the, the Gypsy and Traveller local plan is a requirement for nine pitches within the first five years. There are a, com a complete range of ways that you uh, tackle this project, this proposal. And... We'll uh, touch in a moment. We're going to be going out to consultation shortly with, with um, every stakeholder in the district, asking them for their views on how we should approach this topic. What we had to do is we had to issue a call for sites, it's called. So just like 
Um, we do for housing, we say to the general um, landowning or interested parties, are there any sites available for gypsy and traveller use within the district? And we had, I think from memory, 12 sites that came back. We um, instructed Peter Brett Associates to carry out an assessment of all those sites that were returned, all the existing gypsy and traveller sites in the district, and any others that, that had come up on the, on the um, intervening period, certainly any that were um, temporary unauthorised sites. Because what we needed to do is, is understand the, the potential sites available so the council can make um, some sensible choices and sensible decisions. So as part of that work, and that report is, is now um, was published, uh, presented to a local plan working group as a, as a piece of evidence from the consultants, they looked at... Um, all the sites, they visited them, they did a landscape appraisal, they spoke to um, Essex County Council Highways, they spoke to the archaeological department, they spoke to landscape and the conservation officer, the environment agency, to try and take into account all these different constraints there might be in relation to the sites. Um, and that then starts to hone down the sites that are available. Having said that, that piece of work is being, is, is being parked, it's not it's not being thrown away, but it's being parked as an evidence base. So when we go out to consultation, as I mentioned, we're going to ask people for comments on all the sites that have been put forward, both the existing sites and all the sites that came forward as consultation. That's exactly the same as we did for the housing consultation many years ago, if you were involved in the um, green and red dot exercise. Um, all the sites that were put forward for housing were put there on maps and people could comment upon them. That's exactly the same that's going to happen in relation to the Gypsy and Traveller assessment. And one of the things we do need to be quite careful about is that we're approaching it exactly the same way. The guidance from government is the same and we need to approach the issue in the same way. So in terms of the next consultation, we are preparing what we call an issues and options consultation. That sets out and asks a range of questions about how we should approach this topic. So we're going to ask a range of open questions so that we can get as much feedback as possible. So as I said, all sites that have been submitted or assessed will be part of that consultation. So both existing sites and proposed sites. Um, a range of questions to gauge people's views, to assist us in going forward. So for example, do you agree with the, the number that's come up with? Is there, do you agree with the, the, the methodology we, we use to reach that? Do you think it's better to have a larger number of smaller sites or a smaller number of larger sites. Two completely different ways of doing it. So you could have one pitch, or one, one site, sorry, that dealt with all 26 pitches. Is that the best approach? Or you have a number of sites of, of five pitches each. So a number of different ways that you can approach the topic. Now as part of this, um, or, the, or the next stage rather, when we get back all the results, we'll need to look at those quite carefully both in terms of the statutory consultees, for example, whether or not um, highways authority think that the site is, is accessible or not, and also comments from local population, whether that be individuals or parish and town councils. At that stage, when we start to think about allocating sites, we're going to um, ensure that all the councils on the local plan working group who can attend are able to go and visit those sites, just as we do with planning applications. Um, so a, a nice um, mystery tour of the district going around the sites to, to see them so that the councillors who are making that decision can understand the context, understand the comments that have been made both by the statutory consultees and from the, the, the local population. 
Um, and just with, with the planning applications, it's quite important to be able to understand and visualise the sites before those decisions are made. That will then feature into another consultation mid-next year, which is effectively the allocations document. So this will be when we decide, when we're responding to the answers to those questions about whether it's appropriate to do large or small sites, it will be coming out and saying, well, actually, the council thinks that these sites are better because of X, Y, Z reason. And again, there'll be another full public consultation um, to, to get people's um, views in relation to, to those, those allocations. We expect the document um, will be uh, adopted in 2016, um, just because of the timescales, um, partly because there's the election, so we need to ensure we've, we've got a, a, a wide berth in relation to the elections because we can't be consulting um, during that period. So it does, and then, then we go into the summer, so it, does, it will delay, delay the consultation process. But we think that we'll be adopting in 2016 on this, on this document. Just, just as Colin said in relation to housing, it's important that we do get this document adopted because then we're in a much stronger place to resist other sites that we may not wish to, uh, to be approving. Because at the moment, we don't have a five-year land supply of gypsies. So the nine, the nine pitches that we need to be demonstrating, we, we don't have anywhere near that in terms of that provision. So if we do have sites coming forward, then obviously that's something we need to take into account, taking into account the, the national advice on the topic. So um, a, a very um, interesting um, next, next few consultations on this document, and uh, hopefully members, people here will be able to comment and make their views known. So thank you. Thank you very much, Andrew. We've heard from a number of speakers this morning and hopefully you've got, gained a good understanding of, of the key issues that, that are going on right now in Uttlesford. Uh, we do have time now for questions for the panel of speakers before we break for the workshop. So do we have any questions from the floor? Um, I think we have a microphone. If you could say who you are and where you're from. Uh, hello there, uh, Keith Mackman, another district councillor. Uh, I just wondered if the uh, lady from um, Hastow, I'm not even going to try to pronounce her name, if she could give us a baseline on uh, how much the houses cost per unit. It, I can probably give you an indication on more on the square metre cost, and that, that also includes all the infrastructure costs, because obviously on rural exception sites we have to also consider bringing new infrastructure, new roads, new connections and so on. So already it makes an exception side usually that little bit more expensive. Um, at the moment we're looking at around 1,800 a square metre. But as I said in my presentation, we are currently working, we are just um, in the planning process for Wimbish for a second uh, affordable housing scheme and again the parish council was um, you know, really stressing that they would like to see that again as a passive house development. So uh, that's our intention, and we're looking to work with one of our contractors to really see where, where the costs are and whether we can address that and you know, potentially look at how we can reduce the cost. Is it either through the design or through the supply chain? So we're really going into a lot of detail to hopefully be able to kind of reduce the cost so that we can deliver more passive homes. Household. A typical three-bedroom house would be about 85 square metres, so that's 153,000 
£1,000 just to build. That's excluding the land costs and other fees. Any other questions? Gentlemen here. <coughs> Yes, Councillor Doug Perry, Uttlesford and Saffron Warden, District Councillor and Town Councillor. Two questions for our Health Commissioner. With regard to Saffron Warden, it is a unique position where most of the services it attaches to is at Addenbrooke's, which is outside the Uttlesford District and Essex. We have a lot of controversy with the standard of care because it's dual. And also, with regard to mental health services, your presentation worries me and if I feel that it's going to be centralisation of services which means as usual the rural area will lose out. We're seeing closure even now of mental health facilities all over Essex particularly in Saffron Walden. Okay, thank you. Um, in, in terms of um, centralisation and, and services going out of area, it, it, it's a situation that we, we have across Essex. Um, I'm more familiar with the, the South Essex situation around South End, but I imagine it's similar with Addenbrooke's. So there, there is a duty for the, the clinical commissioning groups and the hospital commissioners to come together to look at the health and wellbeing needs of that population. So there will be meetings where the clinical commissioning group that covers Uttlesford, the West Essex CCG, is meeting with the one responsible for Addenbrooke's to look jointly at the needs of that population. Now, it may mean that they need to commission different things and you will get inequalities there, but equally you can get some responsiveness to, to local needs and so on. Um, in terms of, of mental health and centralisation, um, I think w what I'm seeing is, is some efforts to avoid centralisation. So I think from where I sit, the resources are, are too concentrated in health settings and they need to be back into the community and have more localised solutions. So I'm, I'm sorry I'm not aware of the particular local issues, but I, th I think we are trying to travel away from the situation you're describing. Okay. One over here and then one at the back. Thank you, Mike Hibbs, Saffron Warden Town Council. Colin, you made a very excellent presentation on national housing issues and uh, made the point very well that uh, we need to build more housing. Um, the reservations that I have are that uh, what evidence is there that building more houses in Uttlesford is going to reduce the value of land? Uh, is it really going to generate cheaper housing? And secondly, uh, what evidence is there that by delivering it through the current Section 106 agreements that we're going to get affordable housing of any particular uh, quantity. Uh, I think those issues are really vital to selling <coughs> the need for housing to the people to Uttlesford and I'm not convinced. I think my key response to that would be that no local authority is an island. You can't look at one local authority in isolation because everyone always says they have a special case. Uh, the figure I put up, about 80% say there's a housing crisis, but only 40% say there's a local uh, crisis. I mean, land values are based on planning permission, effectively. So the more land you release, um, hopefully in the longer term, the, the prices go down, land prices go down, and, and house prices go down. 
uh, well, that, that's an argument in a national sense that if you release a lot more land, then hopefully uh, land prices and house prices would come down. I mean, clearly there's a huge disparity between uh, rural land, maybe £12,000 a hectare, um, and as soon as it gets planning permission for residential, it shoots up somewhere like Oxford to £4 million a hectare. So that gap is, is, a, is a massive a massive gap, but I think if, if you take that across the country as a whole and increase supply significantly, then you would see land prices and house prices coming down. I mean, clearly there are structural problems within the housing market as a whole, the issues of under-occupancy that I spoke about, issues about where people are living, issues about north-south divide, and so on. So it's, it's slightly more complex than just saying supply of land is, is the answer to all those problems, but I think it's a big factor. Sorry, was there something else you wanted? Section 106. Um, again, that's slightly up in the air now because of the changes with moving to the uh, community infrastructure levy and so on. You're not doing that. Um, I mean, the evidence I've seen is that, that all the targets that have been set for affordable housing supply have not been met. The 40% target is usually a, mu a much lower figure than that. But, um, I think... It I think it's worth pointing out that actually we do have quite a good record here in Oxford of achieving our um, affordable housing allocation and as you, as you being in the business that you're in Mike, you know um, exactly what our requests are on um, our affordable housing. It starts with a um, minimum amount for uh, over three, three and upwards properties and um, up to 40% when you're building 14 or more, and we do have a really good track record of actually achieving that. So clearly, if we, are, if we do have more market housing, we, do, we, we as, a, as a housing department, do get more houses to allocate for um, people in the, with affordable housing. Can I come back? Yeah, briefly. Simply to say that what concerns me about the way in which we are uh, levying that housing charge uh, is that it seems to me that it effectively stops the small builders from developing, that we talked about. It effectively stops the conversion of premises over shops and uh, so on. And those are issues where the council, I believe, could do an awful lot more to generate housing capitals with smaller uh, development level. Mm. I think on a wider scale, I mean, clearly there are flats over shops and brownfield land and so on, but taken as a whole, those are never going to meet the numbers we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so I was just going to comment. I mean, yeah, we, we seek financial contributions from schemes of two or more dwellings and have been very successful in doing that. We haven't seen a slowdown at all in applications coming forward. Um, what I would say has had an impact in terms of that is the new permitted development rights and the government have introduced to convert offices um, or employment to residential without requiring planning permission um, and therefore that um, will circumnavigate that, that policy or any other requirement for affordable housing or infrastructure. So we've seen a considerable number across the district we're going that route where there have been no um, securing of contributions for affordable housing or education or anything else like that um, because of that opening up of that levy. Mm. Okay, we had one at the back, I think. Yeah. And Eric Hicks, um, Attersford District Councillor for Barnston and High Easter. Not switched on. Yeah, you can. Oh, it is. 
Closer? Is that better? Thank you. Um, the question for Andrew Taylor, really. Um, in um, Colin's presentation, initially he gave projections for population growth over the nation as a whole. Um, how are the same um, projections, um, do they apply to the traveller community and are we um, having to provide more sites because they um, are growing the number of travellers uh, residing here? Are they growing at the same rate as the population? Thank you, yes. Well, Gypsy, it's um, it worked out on exactly the same basis. It's based on population change demographics. And um, actually, there, there is a, a, I think it's slightly lower than, than the general population change um, in terms of, terms of numbers. The, the government used to set a, a threshold of, of some um, a 3% population change. And I think the figures are worked out. I can't quite know. It's either 1.5 or, or 2% change. Um, so, yes, it is based on exactly the same methodology of looking at population change, births and deaths. Um, there have been uh, also uh, many more single-headed households in the Gypsy traveller population rather than you know, two, two, two people heading that household, um, as with the settled community. So there is no difference in relation to that. The only other thing I'd comment about is the government have recently closed their consultation on changing the rules in relation to planning for the traveller community uh, and changing the, the definition of gypsies and travellers within that. Um, so that's something we need to, um, if they decide to continue on that route, it's something we need to monitor very closely. Okay. Um, just to the left, right of you, rather. Um, Sandy Merrifield, Stirling Parish Council. Um, my question is to Doug Merlins. Um, can I take it from what you said, um, apart from Red and Rolling, um, the housing in the Dunmore area and the other half of the district is doing far better than in Saffron Walls and in Newport in the fact that there doesn't appear to be any um, housing being um, made better or um, created better um, over the next few years. In, in terms of the sheltered housing that we're looking at, it's, it's one of these things with, with, with the sheltered housing, we, you can only do so many at a time because obviously the nature of the tenants who are living in the building are, are, are old and often frail. And if you're having to move people out in order to do improvement works, then um, there's only so many properties you can move people to over that period of time. There has been a review of all our sheltered housing and there will be there are a couple of other schemes that we need to look at moving forward, one of which is in Dunmo, um, in terms of does that, is that going to be fit for purpose moving forward uh, as we go. So certainly that is something which is on our radar to, to look at. Um, the, the tenants of those buildings have all been consulted over a period of time and we will be moving that forward uh, probably in the next 12 months or so to start to look at certainly the scheme in Dunmo. Okay. Any final questions? This one here. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Two more. Jan Menor, I'm a district councillor for Little Reward. If you uh, plan for one housing in a village, you have a cascade of emails. If you plan for four housing exception sites, you have two years of controversy. If you build onto the town, 
you have a riot. If you suggest a gypsy and traveler site, you have an uprising. I'm just wondering how we change attitudes, but also I have another question which affects the young much more, and that is that they don't seem to want to own their own houses. They seem to prefer to rent, and you did suggest that that was an area that the money should be being pushed towards, social housing and renting, and I wondered if that is an attitude that is general. I'm not sure there's any evidence that young people don't want to buy. It's just that they're, it's unafford, completely unaffordable. Um, I mean, I've got two daughters in their 20s. Who, there's no way in, in a million years they could buy at the moment unless I die or <laughs> sell up and downsize. So I think that's, that's the key issue as far as I can see. I think in terms of how you get people to, to come on board with house building, as I said earlier, it's, it's really down to local authorities like this one to think up creative ways of engaging with communities and trying to get them on board with um, understanding first of all the housing need and secondly trying to push them towards coming up with ideas about where housing can go because I think once within the local plan process once the numbers are agreed the housing numbers then you have to say those numbers are fixed you as a community where do we put the houses you might not want, want uh, one site, but if that's the case, then where do you find another site to replace it? Do you find it on the edge of towns, the edge of villages, or, or a completely new settlement? I think that's something that the local authority has to, has to decide. But there has to be a way nationally, I think, for people to um, have a say within their communities about where new development goes. I think that's the challenge. Okay, uh, last question. Over here, and then I think we need to move on to the to the workshops. Thank you, um, Alan Dean from District Council from Stansted. My, my question is directed at uh, Andrew Taylor. The basic question, I guess, is where in this district is the greatest pressure for, for housing? Uh, you know, either the, the housing prices are going up more than in other parts, and because I was I was confused by the the coloured maps that we had on, on, the, uh, on the screen in terms of travel to work. For instance, there was one slide which showed the north of the district as more of a London travel to work area than the south of the district where I live, which confuse, uh, puzzles me. And then when you extracted the tr London travel to work data, it showed the north of the district, I think in dark mauve or something, different from the Cambridgeshire uh, shading. So that, did that mean that the North of District strands, stands in isolation or is it part of the, the Cambridge um, attraction area? So I'm just puzzled as to where the pressures are coming from for housing in the district and where the differentials are. Um, that's not an easy one to answer. Um, certainly like this without sitting down for quite a long time to try and work it out with you. Um, I think the... The greatest influence of, on our area is London. And I think um, it, it, those graphs weren't just travel to work graphs, but um, it does look at the impact of different areas. And I would suggest it's not surprising that the area showing up to the north of the district um, to the west of Audley End has a predominance of people travelling to London for work. I don't think that's unusual. Um, the latter graphs, yes, it showed the... the 
bulk of the south of the district being in a similar area to Harlow, Bishop Stortford and Epping and the north, it might be a different colour but it, it was relating to Cambridge I think it's just a different colour on the graph to differentiate them but it, effectively it, was that it, it feeds into the Cambridge sub-region so you, as I was trying to explain you do get a completely different range of, of impacts um, around the district just depending on where you are um, I think any, anyone who just stands looking there, I mean Stansted does relate to Bishop Stortford, you know a lot of services are, are similar in relation to that and it does have that impact or a relationship to the areas closer to London in terms of that ge geography but when you come to the London pressures they're not just related to geography they are much more related to commuting points um, whether that's rail stations or road it spreads out a much wider area so yeah, look, the London impact is by far the largest impact on our district in terms of um, population change and, and those, those, those changing demographics within the, district, within the district there are I mean historically there have always been sort of three dominant areas sort of the Stanford area, the Great Dunmo focusing on, on um, Chelmsford and, and the north focusing to Cambridge there's been that, that pull from the three areas um, I don't necessarily think that's changed, but just looking at the way that these graphs are made up, you get to a, a containment rate um, of, of similarities within those areas, which covers a slightly broader area than it did previously. Okay. Can we uh, regroup, please? Could I ask all of the um, people who've been selected to feedback to come and sit up here at the front? Okay, uh, the challenge I've got is that we have to get to lunch by 1.30 today, so um, the challenge for the people who've been asked to feedback is to, is to speak for no more than uh, one minute on their, on their subject. Um, what happened is we've got um, five questions and seven groups, so there's a certain amount of duplication among the groups, so what I'll do is, is go through each question in turn and ask um, people to feedback and if another group has covered that question to, to double up as well if that makes sense so I don't think everyone has seen these questions so I'll just uh, quickly go through them the first question was about um, the council being offered free council housing on section 106 sites instead of the 40% uh, which is the norm at the moment where um, grant and private finance would come in so effectively a developer might give 20% say of social housing straight to the council if that makes sense rather than the 40% target so the question was ewed so who wants to answer that first John I'm John Moran I'm the, one of the Conservative candidates for the seat at Newport in next year's district council uh, elections and we being succinct said no but uh, quite a firm no because it seemed to us that developers are banging on the door to come and develop here so why should we reduce that down below 40% but um, there may be particularly some smaller schemes by local builders 
if that was the difference between them building them and not, and if it was a reduction was maybe by down to 30, 35%, 30% or so, it, possibly a consideration. But the, the view was no, because um, if we were trying to attract developers, it might be different. But it appeared to us that we're, we're getting them attracted anyway. So why should we drop that and miss out on those affordable housing, which is uh, greatly in need for uh, this area, maybe much more than uh, the local people might understand. So that was our view on that one. So the, the consensus seemed to be stick with the 40% policy. Anyone else want to comment on that? Yes, thank you, Colin. Um, our group uh, said we need to understand the long-term implications of such a, uh, a choice for meeting need, because whilst as council stock it would give the council a revenue stream that revenue stream would need to build up over a number of years before it could be used to uh, to support new investment in, in additional stock um, developer made the point that uh, development economics is quite a complex subject um, the developer will always want to test the opportunity of sale of, of plots to a housing association because there's a market for um, affordable housing uh, with housing associations and there was also a question about the capability of the district council to assess uh, development economics at a, at a, a site level uh, on the other hand such a flexibility in terms of policy would allow the best options to ex be explored on, on a site by site basis mm. I think the group I was in did suggest that for very small sites it might be an option where uh, to encourage small house builders it makes it simpler if you say to him or her you're building 10, give us one or give us two, and it, the, the paperwork is less. So I think it, it was worth looking at. Yeah, what was coming out with that one very much was, um, particularly if it's local builders, so the part of the plus is that you're more likely to be employing local people and you're supporting local businesses. Okay. So that might be one of the areas where there might be a consideration of reduction. Doug? And, and our group was more of a sort of a, a, a yes but, I think, we went down that route. There was, there was real interest in taking free units and being able to use the money over a period of time to reinvest in, in new affordable council housing. But we did get on to the whole level of affordable rents and, and whether they are specifically affordable in this particular district and whether there was an opportunity on this basis to take free units and charge a lower rent than the affordable rent level uh, in trying to make homes truly affordable. Yeah, I think that's really important because that then impacts less on housing benefit and allows people to work and so on. Um, okay, so is that, we covered all the angles on that. All of this feedback will go back to um, the team so that they can feed this into the strategy. The next question we were looking at was um, through commuted sum contributions, which is the money you get from developers for off-site provision, uh, council is gaining a small pot of funding to deliver affordable housing across the district. What type of housing should be provided? Council housing for older people, council housing for young people, specialist housing for those with uh, a, a special needs, mental, um, disabilities, etc. Council, uh, council homeless accommodation or general council house building. So, John, did you want to... We, we again didn't really come up with a, <laughs> a firm answer. I think we, we were of the view that all of those are required. The demographics of this area are such that the elderly, uh, it's going to be number of people in this area are going to increase greatly over the next uh, 10, 15 years. So that might be 
an area that was looked at a lot. But the homelessness is on the rise, as we saw with some figures early on. So it really, again, comes down to depends on what needed. Yeah. Uh, it's got to be in the right location and for Pacific client groups. And there was a lot of conversation in our group around things like uh, bungalows, particularly for the elderly, um, um, and possibly some uh, people downsizing. And the, the needs and requirements here are maybe vastly different from them within cities when we're talking about um, uh, trying to get people to, to downsize out of um, provided housing. So uh, there was also a, a conversation around the need for temporary accommodation, which is a very difficult balancing act for uh, councils. How do you get that right? So I think our view was you assess what your needs are and you would not specifically target one of those areas. You'd have to do some work around what is the exact needs um, okay. for that use of that sum. Okay, anyone else? Judith? Um, yeah, I think we basically sort of, when I read the list out, they just said, well, all of those, um, <laughs> all as of you above. would. But we also had talks around how the housing needs need to be provided within a community and where the needs of the population are met. So, in other words, you've got to have, it's no good just having the housing. The housing's got to be in the right place where the people living in those houses can access um, doctors, schools, transport, etc. So it was conversations around that. We also then got on to conversations about where financial contributions go and what happens to those and if health say they don't want it why don't we say well we'll have it and keep it in a pot and use it ourselves and decide what to do with that money rather than just saying letting health say no they don't want any money for a particular event we should say well okay well we'll have it instead okay. and put it into a pot and use it okay good Suzanne um, we had some quite interesting proposals um, it was suggested maybe spend the money where the money came in from so spend it in that that village or that area. Um, other things that wasn't on the list that the group came up with, maybe spending the money on empty properties, bringing them back into use, um, and also looking at maybe meeting the older person's housing need for exception sites. Okay. Yes. Good. Anyone else? Doug? Yeah, I mean, it was like everyone else. It was a, it was a yes, but there needs to be a business case made for for every opportunity that it could be. But we particularly had discussions around homelessness and the increasing pressure that the district's having for for meeting temporary accommodation, and whether there was something we could do along those lines, and whether we can be imaginative in how we perhaps provide temporary accommodation, um, and also picking up as well, um, particularly around housing for older people and our, our aging population. Uh, so those were two key issues that we, we discussed at length. Okay. Can I, can I just say, well, our, one point that we did want to make was that, okay, yes, we've been talking a lot about the needs of the older population and the ageing population, is that, not to forget, that we also need to keep the younger population within the district to look after all the older population. Yeah. So, not to, not to forget about that section okay, of the community. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's more or less what everyone else said. Um, specialist affordable accommodation. Um, one thing we brought up is that keeping elderly in villages, we need, to, we need to get people to downsize the smaller accommodation. We haven't got sort of smaller accommodation in villages. Mm -hmm. And where Simon will say that we're not getting funding at the moment for extra care and different schemes, that funding's going down, we should be sort of trying to sort of fund more disabled and specialist accommodation. Okay. Good. We're done on that one. I'm sorry. Sorry, can I just, I don't know whether I should come in here or not, but can I just say we came up with quite a good 
thing, I think, is um, when we're talking about downsizing, it's making it sort of um, attractive for people to do so. There was a lady from the Papworth Trust, and I can't see her anymore. Um, she, uh, she was uh, saying to us that they do a, um, a try-before-you-buy type scheme so that someone could move in to um, a smaller property whilst their property was actually being let for a few months so that you get used to moving rather than having to get out there and do it. You got um, a bit of a, a, a flavour of what it was okay. going to be like. Good. So the next question was about uh, rural exception sites and whether um, we should allow under-occupation within those schemes to allow families to grow into them rather than having them being full from the very first uh, day they're let. So who wants to respond to that? We, we did answer that one and the, the general answer was no, we don't want to see that. Um, we think we should allocate those to meet um, the size of the, the... The family going in should meet the size of the house. It shouldn't be allowing under-occupation. So um, it was felt that they shouldn't be an exception. So on, that, was the gen that was the feeling of our group anyway. Strict. <laughs> Anyone else? I've got, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, it was, <laughs> we went one way, then the other way, then the other way. It, we realise it's very contentious because, you know, obviously you want to help people sort of in the village and help, help the family grow. We came up with a few ideas because I think to begin with we were quite for it and one of the suggestions was that, you know, that you can put a lump sum, some of the Section 106 money, you can put that to safeguard so people do fall short with the rent, there is a sort of pot of money to help them out for under-occupancy if they do fall on hard times. Um, another innovative idea was that um, put, put something in the planning that some of these properties can be extended. At the moment they can't on exception sites, but we could put something there that the, um, you can have loft conversions or extensions yeah. so that the family grows with the property. And I think by the time we discussed it, we got, to, we got quite hard by the end of it and said, no, if you're in the private sector, you buy what you can afford, you, go, you, you don't go above your means. So I think we, we stuck with no. Okay, good. Right, anyone else on that? No. The next question was about um, the council has recently supported a small number of private homes to help deliver high-efficiency, energy-efficient rural exception schemes. What other benefits could private housing cross-subsidise? So this, um, Ulrika talked about this in her presentation this morning. Who wants to? Did anyone cover this question? No? Oh. Roger. Um, and we started off by focusing on the higher energy efficiency offer, uh, but there were some questions there about who actually gets the benefit from that, who gets the feed-in tariff, um, the tenant obviously would get the free electricity during daylight hours, but uh, that might be the limit of the benefit that they got. Um, from the Housing Association's perspective, you know, we need to recognise that there is reduced grant availability to, to secure these, these, these properties. Um, as a consequence, they were made available on affordable rents, not social rents, 8% of market rent, very high in Uttlesford. Um, and a benefit of lower energy costs from a higher energy efficiency envelope, thermal envelope, reduces the cost of occupation. So that was a way of offsetting the affordable rents by making the, the cost of occupation lower. Um, we also sort of began to talk about whether, in fact, um, 
having a market element in a rural exception site might actually be essential to make any scheme viable. It wasn't necessarily a question of what additional benefits do you get from market housing. It might be mm-hmm. essential in the first place. Um, but it, again, it was recognised that the, any flexibility in the po- in a policy would be useful to respond to community views and feed into a site-by-site assessment. Um, but just one final marker, which perhaps is not always recognised, that if you do include an element of market housing on exception sites, the landowner doesn't realise any more land value per plot. Uh, so that often there was an expectation issue there on the part of the landowner uh, in terms of his preparedness or her preparedness to release the site for development might be a false expectation. Okay, good. So the next question was about uh, gypsy and traveller sites, which Andrew talked about this morning. Should we be providing a large number of small sites or a smaller number of large sites? Who wants to respond to that? Did you not cover that? Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank God. Um, we didn't think there was a, a straightforward answer to this smaller sites, larger sites question. Um, it very much depended upon uh, what the particular needs of the Gypsy and Traveller households were. We noted that Gypsy and Traveller households don't necessarily mix. You might need to be addressing the, the need for Gypsy pitches and Traveller pitches, not necessarily, in fact quite unlikely, necessarily to be most appropriately addressed on the same site. Um, You also need to take into account the views of the settled community in the the area. It was also a factor as to whether or not uh, the issue was whether a tolerated unauthorised site should become authorised. That might well feed into uh, views as to, to whether a larger site would be acceptable because we did hear about some examples of, of larger sites that uh, had operated without causing a problem site of, uh, with up to 15 vans on it. Um, there was an issue we felt that larger sites could develop into a problem in the future and that was something that uh, should be taken into account. We also recognised, or noted that Basildon are currently exploring Gypsy and Traveller pitch provision as part of um, larger housing developments. But the fundamental issue, again, still was, is that the right, is a site the right location to meet the needs which um, have been expressed? Uh, and also in that context, would it substitute for affordable housing for the settled community? Okay. Um, so a number of questions. More questions than answers to that one. Uh, the next one was homelessness. How do we get the private sector to be, genuine house, to be a genuine housing option for people facing homelessness? You first. Rosberg. <laughs> um, I don't think we came up with any real answers, um, apart from legislation and rent capping, which I don't think is probably on the government's agenda. Um, and tenancy sort of regulation. So I think it was, we sort of looked then at maybe we need to change the perception of private landlords, of, the, of tenants and people who need to claim benefit. And um, so maybe that's kind of an education process there. Obviously, we talked about direct payment of rent, which um, at the moment 
can be done in certain cases, but obviously if universal credit comes in, then that's going to scupper that one because the, the rent will go to the claimant and um, hopefully they'll then pay it to the landlord. So that, again, is going to be another reason for landlords to say, oh, I'm, I'm not taking somebody who's on claiming benefit, despite the fact that they obviously can take a tenant one day who may be on benefit the next day. Um, we then sort of maybe, maybe we need to have an offer of tenancy support to give landlords more confidence in taking some of the um, clients that we see. So, again, obviously we have a, a floating support, but it's maybe expanding that service. Didn't like the idea of the council being a last guarantor of last resort. Um, then we looked at what incentives maybe that um, we could give landlords to come on board, um, and again, whether the council wanted to go down that route, as some authorities have. Um, or then looking on kind of at a leaseholder type scheme model. So that was our thoughts, but no easy answers in an area like this. Okay. Yeah, um, we discussed some of those. We actually sort of quite like the idea of being a, our group of being a guarantee, providing guarantees and incentives to landlords because um, we sort of touched on, again, the Section 106 money and putting that into a fund. We, we were already doing um, private sector guarantees anyway for the private sector, so it was just taking it a step further that we could provide a service where we become the land, you know, the, the landlord gives the property to us for a period of three, a bit like the place scheme, that we would have that property for three years and it would give them sort of more confidence about the fact that they would get a, a regular income, a, a regular rent, and we would deal with all the tenancy issues and we thought that might be quite a good use of Section 106 money as well to sort of try to get the market uh, stimulated. Okay. Um, we also sort of said we, to make a bit more use of um, the Landlord Accreditation Scheme. We've just become a member of the Landlord Accreditation Scheme and maybe go out there and promote it a bit more, you know, promote, show landlords how to become good landlords. Um, we do a lot of work for landlords, but it's just taking it a step further. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anyone else? Okay, the last question was about um, ageing population, which we talked about this morning, and policies shifting towards uh, caring people for people at home and in the community. Uh, Recognising this change, what should our housing provision look like for our older population, and what links should there be with health providers? Yes. I think we thought that there should be a huge link with the health provider. Um, in fact, that the partnership would consist of the health provider and we would sit around them. Um, we, need to get the, we thought we needed to get the infrastructure mainly around the house to enable the, the elderly to stay. So rather than looking at building a bungalow or a elderly accommodation, we look at what they're already in and make sure that we've got everything else around there that will keep them in their home. Um, we said that nothing worked, obviously, in isolation. But also, um, we, we talked about the lack of affordability of properties for key workers. So although we are encouraging of people staying in their own homes as they grow older, we need to be able to make sure that those people that care for those elderly um, also can afford to live in the area. Because what's happening is they're the, one of our, our lowest paid workforce and we, um, they are having to, to travel in to our district to be able to care for those people that need it. So maybe we should be looking at our key workers again and, and looking at um, having something for them. 
Um, we went on to talk a bit about more about the specialist accommodation too, and we feel that we need more of that within the district. And we talked about the domestic abuse, which is very underreported at the moment by elderly people. But what is, what's happening is that that's been encouraged when people go to hospital. That's been encouraged for them to, to talk about it. But actually, if they do and they need to move out of a property, we really haven't got anywhere to place those people. And it's not like you can just put them into a normal, a normal, a refuge where there would be normally mums, young children. Um, they need somewhere where they would feel safe uh, to, to stay. So we talked about that. Um, I don't know if I should say this, but we did say about the planning system isn't, doesn't seem to be working around this at this time. We seem to need to be a bit more flexible with what we're doing and what we're, pl what we're planning. Okay, anyone else? We, we talked about this issue in regard to carers very much within the, the definition of the key worker. Uh, we, we talked about having a push for a living wage, but with the pr prices here, I still don't think that's going to get some of these uh, carers in particular, and with the, the rise in the number of elderly, uh, we had conversations around that. I think we've, we've also talked about actually tucking in with the employers and finding out where is it they can't recruit people, um, particularly when you're talking about in the, the, the specific area of caring for the elderly. Uh, it seems to me that every week in the papers here, that is one specific area where they are calling for workers. Um, when there's not that many adverts and over, I would suggest 50% of them are for workers in that industry, maybe there's, that's, that's saying something to us and shouting out to us that there needs to be some issue. Definition of a key worker can be, I feel, can be, and we talked about this as well, geographic. So key workers, tend, people tend to think of nurses, uh, firemen, police officers. Uh, I think the key workers in this area are from different um, areas, in particular uh, the carers. So that's what we've talked about. We also talked about key workers and um, we sort of talked about how in the past we've had a key worker policy that didn't really work and we didn't find many key workers when we had the policy in place but now it seems to be there's a shortage of health workers as other people have said and maybe we need to revisit the policy and look at how we sort of look on our development sites at providing some new key worker housing. It was also suggested maybe we should have a directory of widows and uh, all the widows are in large, large houses. Maybe we match them up with um, young professionals that need looking after and need some accommodation and have some sort of accredited scheme okay. done by the council. Like a lodging, lodgers. Okay. Yeah, I realise I'd missed out the key worker question, but I, don't, I think, as John said, we didn't really reach any firm <laughs> answers on that. Anyone else? I think we also talked about maybe going, for those of us old enough to remember, going back to the, um, the prefab, and uh, was suggested that maybe that would be an affordable house and go back to there. <laughs> okay, on that note, I think we ought to bring that to a close. Uh, thanks very much to everyone who's uh, fed back and to all of you for your contributions. I think it's been really helpful and all of this will feed into the, um, the final strategy. Do you have... Yes, they'll all be on the. They'll be sent out by email, I think, to, to everyone who's attended and those who didn't attend, as well. So finally, um, ask John Mitchell to come and say a few words. 
Thank you all for coming. Okay, I won't keep you. The lunch is served. Um, just, uh, just a few thoughts, really. Firstly, it did occur to me that this isn't a new problem, meeting housing needs. I think um, 19th century social reformers would be appalled to find that this conversation was taking place in today's day and age. Uh, we don't seem to have moved on from, uh, in that respect. What's come out today is the significance of the, of the um, relationship between housing provision, health provision and planning and that's always been there, but perhaps we've lost sight of that over, over recent years, but I think we should, should need to pick up on that. And we've seen a lot today about supply of land, availability of land, affordability, what the public and private sector can do, but our failings manifest themselves in homeless service. And um, you know, it may be a small number, 24, 25, but beneath that is an awful lot of problems, and it's the council that's most decent, I think, where there. So... That, that's been good. And our role, if you like, coming out of some of this as councils, is to keep people away from hospitals, if we possibly can. And one way we can really do that is through a decent housing stock and proper aftercare, proper facilitated properties. And um, it's not just through housing, but public, public health, leisure, prosperity, they all have a role to play in keeping people away from the health service. But housing, to me, is the key role this council can do and building houses then is the answer but we see so much opposition as, as you call it like right at the start that um, you know people see there's a, a need there's a housing crisis in this country but not here and we've got to get uh, we've got we've come across that and we had to deal with that and from just a simple Uttlesford perspective and I will close on that yeah, our population in Uttlesford isn't huge we'd all fit in Wembley Stadium and there'll still be 10,000 seats spare. It's not an enormous place. And yet, we are half the size of Greater London. So there's space here. All the housing development in the local plan, if it was all built in one place, it wouldn't take up a third of the airport. And people who are scared that we're going to conquer it over the district. If we build at the rate we propose in the local plan, it would take us three and a half thousand years. Now, a lot can happen in that time. And I would suggest that we might change our culture and approach. So, on that basis, there really is nothing to be frightened of. There's a huge problem out there. We need to deal with it, and let's just get on with it. I'd like to close and thank you for chairing it, Colin, and for everyone who spoke. If they're not all up there, then they're all over the place. For um, Susanna and Stephanie for organising this, the predominant role in that, and for all of you for coming. It's been a really useful morning, and I hope you've all enjoyed it. And there's what looks like an excellent lunch over there. My favourite is prawns. So thank you all very much indeed. And show our appreciation. <coughs> thank you. Uh, afraid I'm fa I failed. It's four minutes past, but no, there we go. Uh, can I remind you also to fill in the um, feedback form, which is in your pack? Uh, that, that would be very helpful. Thanks for coming.